Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. As we develop higher penetration solar, it's going to have to involve batteries. We're just not going to be able to do without massive amounts of batteries, and they're expensive. So if we're going to spend the money, let's make it do double duty and perform that resiliency functions. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 139. Today, Solar Warrior is a true pioneer in the industry and described as the founding father of renewable energy legislation in New Jersey by the New York Times, no less. I'd like to thank Solar Warrior and Suncast listener John Moran for putting me in touch with Mr. Lyle Rawlings. His company, Advanced Solar Products, has been crusading for solar in New Jersey and beyond for nearly 30 years. Stick around for a fantastic listen today. And for those of you in the tribe, there's another 30 minutes or so of the interview that uh, I'm putting into our exclusive tribe member feed. It just didn't fit into today's episode content. Lyle does have a lot to say, a lot of very interesting things that we discuss. You can find more great founders' stories and solar startup advice in the other 138 episodes archived at my Suncast. Com. I want to take a second and thank you all who applied for being coaching client. If I didn't get back to you just yet to schedule a call, please bear with me. As you can probably hear both in this intro and you'll hear in the interview, my voice is not quite where it should be this week. I have been sick since last weekend, but uh, I'm recovering. I'm on the road to recovery. I'm, I couldn't speak this morning. So here we are uh, recording this in time to get it out to you. I will get you scheduled, though, if you're in line for a coaching call. Please bear with me, Solar Warriors, as I push through th- this week of sickness and lost voice. Now get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, if you have been missing our Solar Pioneer series You are in luck because today we have a true solar pioneer, one who has been called by the New York Times, no less, a founding father of renewable energy legislation for New Jersey and broadly speaking for the eastern uh, half of the United States, has been deeply involved in policy and development for the last three decades. Mr. Lyle Rawlings is founder and president of Advanced Solar Products, one of the leading solar developers, designers, and installers in the eastern U.S. He's on the board of Amicus. He is one of the founding uh, members of uh, the Mid-Atlantic SIA. We're going to learn a lot about this Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year today and his thoughts on how the solar market has and will continue to evolve. Lyle, thanks for coming on Suncast. Thanks for having me, Nico. Well, I, I tell you, it's not often that that I get the pleasure to speak with someone who has such a distinguished career over such a breadth of time. I've got a, a series that I call the Pioneer Series, includes folks 
like Sam Vanderhoof, for example, Tony Clifford, another another colleague and friend of yours, I know. Yeah, um, great people. So it's it's really truly a joy for me to be able to interview you, especially when you come so highly recommended by guys like you know John Moran, who uh, hat tip to John, who recommended that we bring you on the show. Another pioneer in his own right. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. So you know, I think that what happens. Unfortunately, in the solar industry, is a lot of things get centralized around or have for the last decade around the conversation, the narrative in San Francisco and the Western region of the United States, where, where a lot of sort of seminal policy at least enabled that state. And what most folks miss is how New Jersey nearly eclipsed California in the late aughts and early teens of, uh, of our industry, right? I think that many have pointed to the work that you've done, obviously not alone, but the work that you've done that was seminal in helping get us to that stage. I know you're good friends with, uh, with Jigger and some of the other folks that just are kind of around sure. the Beltway and, and in the New York, New, uh, New Jersey area have been instrumental in forming companies. And it, it never ceases to amaze me the number of entrepreneurs like yourself who fly under the radar, right? Consistently doing work, well-known within your region, but not, not interested in being a national uh, sort of icon in the way that some others are. <laughs> Would you help us understand your first foray and exposure into the solar power industry? How did that happen? And, and how did you decide to make this a career that now spans three decades? When you were talking about being a pioneer, there was an image that popped into my head for some reason. Uh, you know, when you think of pioneers, there are a lot of famous ones, but I thought of the Donner Party. You know, that was that was the party of folks trying to go west and went over right. the mountains where it was freezing and they all froze to death, right? Not all pioneers make it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, these days we, we jokingly call the industry the solar coaster. You couldn't have said that back when I started because uh, there, there weren't any ups. <laughs> there were only, it was only a, like a low slide. No, but uh, back then, if you really dedicated yourself to the solar industry, for the most part, it was a license to starve to death. I was into renewable energy since I was in college, and that was a really long time ago. Starting in 1976, I was working in the conversion of garbage to energy as a chemical engineering student. When I graduated, I was sort of determined that there were things threatening the world and I had to go save the world. But at the time, my idea of that was that we were running out of oil. So I would uh, work on making more oil, converting coal to oil in, uh, in a clean fashion and joined Exxon Research and Engineering Company up in Florham Park, New Jersey. So that's what took me from West Virginia, where I grew up and went to college, to New Jersey. It didn't take too long, about four years, before I decided that that was BS. Around the same time, I sort of had my environmental epiphany and became more concerned about the environment. And a friend of mine at Exxon, another young engineer, was saying he was going to quit and get into solar energy. And he got me all excited about it. He quit Exxon, backpacked around the world for about five months and came back. I was so excited by his example that I did the same thing. I quit <laughs> Exxon, I, I sold my car, took uh, savings and backpacked around the world and came back. When I came back, I found out that he had joined mobile. <laughs> so he didn't get very far. Before I left, those days we didn't have computers. So uh, I had taken a hand calculator and some science textbooks and figured out a way to do hour-by-hour calculations of solar energy for solar homes. 
and uh, filled a notebook with these hand calculations and took it to an architect who was interested in, in building solar homes. And when I got back, I joined this architect and started doing solar energy. That didn't last long because a, um, a recession hit mm-hmm. just the year I got back in 1981. And architects are always hard hit. I started, uh, they said, uh, can't pay anymore, but you can use our basement. Huh. So I, I got together with uh, the other guy that they said they couldn't pay anymore, an architect, and started an energy conservation company on our own, definitely starving to death. That went for a few years and gradually started uh, trying my hand at, at solar energy, trying to find a way to make it work. So in 1986, I made a bid for a grant by the state of New Jersey. I proposed to build an entirely solar-powered home and use that as the base for an education campaign for solar energy to tell people about it, to, uh, to have schools come in for tours, to teach architecture courses on it and things of that nature. That turned into a struggle to get that grant, uh, but it, uh, it worked. I built this home, started doing solar energy as a, uh, as a nonprofit educational venture and also doing R&D for uh, U.S. Department of Energy. We pioneered doing uh, modular solar homes mm-hmm. where uh, modular home builders would build an entire home in, in like four boxes that would incorporate photovoltaics, solar hot water, super high efficiency, passive solar architecture. Wow. So that's the kind of thing I was doing for a while, but um, it, it was a rough road. Solar energy back then was really photovoltaics in particular was more of a scientific curiosity, really wasn't an industry or a business. If you looked at the stories of a lot of guys who've been around since that era, you'd find that uh, for many of them, it was more of a crusade than a, right. than, than a way to have a career. And if you wanted a career, you had to go work at one of the big oil companies or mm-hmm. one of the then venture-backed, uh, soon-to-be oil company acquisition target uh, solar panel manufacturers like Arco and X, right? So yeah, exactly. I want to back up for a second because you said you were at the uh, Exxon research arm. I don't know if you've listened to Amy Westervelt's podcast series called Drilled. And if you haven't, I highly recommend it where she does this sort of expose crime podcast style on Exxon Mobil or really Exxon and how Exxon had a whole cadre of scientists basically telling them climate change and climate science is real. And so in the 80s, they did an about face and said, okay, well, we've got all these scientists like yourself doing the work of telling us that it's real. Now let's create a campaign to tell the rest of the world that it's not and preserve our bottom line, uh, which is fossil fuel based. While you were inside of Exxon, did you experience any of that uh, dichotomy? I did experience a, a bit of a culture that was anti-solar, but it was just among the rank and file. You know, uh, these were oil guys, and they they thought solar energy was just a ridiculous idea. I, I can remember a cartoon. It was really funny. It was pasted up on the bulletin board where I worked. It showed this miserable caveman family huddled around a fire, just you know, shivering and uh, warming themselves by a primitive fire in a cave. And it said, if you liked the caveman era, you're going to love life under solar energy. They used to say that, you know, you're going to be freezing in the dark if we have to depend on solar energy. So it was just something laughable to oil engineers back then. 
But I, I didn't see any evidence of, of a conspiracy. It could have been there, but it wouldn't have reached down to my level. Uh, what I did see was Exxon taking some tentative steps to uh, adopt solar energy. I wasn't directly involved, but my very good friend Paul Wormser was uh, mm -hmm. with Exxon's early efforts to make uh, uh, photovoltaics uh, happen. And one of the giant steps in the very beginning of photovoltaics was taken by Exxon when they formed, uh, I think it was called Solar Energy Corporation. They helped develop the technology that first brought the cost of solar cells way, way down from the $80 a watt region to the, you know, to the 10 to $20 a watt region. Right. And they actually made the first solar modules, you know, really? the first commercial solar modules. What I was more aware of, uh, because it was right in my uh, right in my building, they also acquired the largest solar hot water panel manufacturer in the U.S. at the time. I think it was called American Solar King. They couldn't make any money at it and ran it into the ground. But people say sometimes that that they bought up these things in order to kill them. I don't know if that's the case or not, but they certainly weren't very successful. Did you always? have in the back of your mind this idea that you wanted to start a company or do you feel like the unwitting entrepreneur where you just were forced into it? Oh, I was totally the unwitting entrepreneur. The intentional part was leaving Exxon and going to work for an architect. But even then, right. I thought I was going to be working for somebody and like mm. within months got kicked out of that uh, dream <laughs> and uh, had to go on my own. So yeah, it was totally by accident. I am genuinely curious to understand as you've evolved your business, your career, your involvement, are there any ways that you've seen yourself evolve as a leader and specific ways that you have changed your viewpoint on running a company over the last three decades? Oh, yeah, for sure. My evolution toward this was not terribly intentional. I was just kind of internally focused and a little fuzzy headed. Uh, I never saw where I was going. It just happened. And so if I could go back and change anything, I think it might be to be a little more intentional about mm -hmm. it because I, I think it could have gone farther faster that way. I'm not complaining about the way it's worked out. I'm pretty pleased with it. I don't know how common it is to, to have ambition, but have it be ideologically motivated. A lot of people I see are just motivated to succeed and in the normal sense of the word. And, and I really wasn't. When I really started down this, this path in the early 1980s, I can remember like two years where I was in an apartment that had no electricity because I, I had the lights turned off because I couldn't pay the bills, you know, also didn't have uh, gas cooking. So I had a little camping stove and candles. That's how I lived. Wow. My, my car had literally fallen apart in rust. So I was bicycling to work 36 mile round trip every day, uh, you know, rain, snow, whatever. I, I bicycled the 36 mile, mile round trip from uh, Plainfield to uh, Morristown over the hills there. So, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I was in the best shape of my life, though. It just didn't matter to me that that was my condition. I was really I was really focused. Maybe this comes from from being a nerd, but I was I was just really focused on what I was doing. And it just slowly, slowly evolved over over 20 years to become a business. Lyle, let's play a game I call hot or hype. I'm going to name uh, a couple of a few markets or topics and you can spend 30, 60 seconds. Tell me whether you think it's hot or hype. And we'll start with microgrids. 
I think that's hot. I think it's going to take longer, much longer to get hot than people think. I've been involved in the development of microgrids and solar plus battery projects, and it's hit bumps and the the projects take time to develop. It's just been a lot slower than people have thought. So I, I think it's going to be a slow burn, but it's going to get hot. Yeah, do you think that microgrids as a core function of the sort of 20th, 21st century utility is, is a reality or it's, or it's going to be uh, very regionally focused or, very, uh, or maybe internationally sort of developing market focused? I think it makes sense because if we're going to spend the money on solar and batteries, we might as well make it form, perform multiple functions, including resiliency. And that's where as we develop higher penetration solar, it's going to have to involve batteries. We're just not going to be able to do without massive amounts of batteries, and they're expensive. So if we're going to spend the money, let's make it do double duty and perform that resiliency functions. I think that'll, that will drive more solar plus battery projects mm-hmm. and secondarily microgrids. Yeah, well, speaking of batteries, Tesla recently outsold Mercedes and nearly outsold BMW in the United States for the first time yeah. ever. So the conversation around EV uh, penetration in the United States and globally is at a fevered pitch. What are your thoughts on vehicle to grid and its impact on uh, our, our electrical system? Hot or hype? I'd say very hot. And again, I think it's going to take longer than than those touting it think. It's just it's a big change and that, that's tough to do. It involves a lot of infrastructure development. And to do the infrastructure development, you have to have state or federal drivers to, to provide the money and regulatory changes to make those infrastructure changes take place. Same with microgrids, by the way. And all of that stuff takes a lot of time and it takes time for any industry to really get on its feet. It's not consumer oriented. These are, these are big governmental type projects, uh, local projects. But it has to come. It must come. And the vehicle to grid is something I've been really thinking about a lot. If you don't mind spending more than 30 to 60 seconds on this, New Jersey, as an example, as you probably know, just passed a massively ambitious clean energy law, the Clean Energy Act, last year on May 23rd. The governor has a huge vision for solar energy. The law said we have to get to 50% renewables by 2030. And the governor subsequently did an executive order requiring 100% renewables by 2050. That is an incredibly difficult goal to actually get to for people like us on the ground engineering it. Part of the law said it required 600 megawatts of stationary batteries by 2021. That's not very long. And 2,000 megawatts by 2030. So that seemed like a very big goal. A lot of concern about how much that's going to cost for all those batteries. So let's take that goal, 2,000 megawatts of batteries by 2030. On behalf of Mid-Atlantic CIA, so that we could help talk to the Board of Public Utilities and the governor's office in Jersey about this policy, started analyzing the cost of those stationary batteries, how to do it, the regulatory changes we would need, and then started looking at the EV requirements that were also in the same bill. And so we, we ran some analysis. What would happen if we converted a third of the vehicles to electric vehicles? That seems very, very doable with the tremendous increase in electric vehicles that we've had, the availability and cost. So we said, 
how much storage capacity would that represent? And it turned out that a third of the vehicles convert into electric, that'd be 183,000 megawatt hours of battery capacity rolling around on the road compared to that 2,000 megawatt hours in the bill. So that's an enormous asset that is almost free for the taking if we can make use of it. So only a small fraction of that at any given time could be a tremendous help in stabilizing the grid, which is going to have enormous amounts of solar and wind on it. If you incentivize EV adoption, but as a state retain some way the rights to access to that electricity for the early adopters or for those who take the incentive, then the state then can control and set up sort of uh, economic policy that where this rolling storage vis-a-vis vehicle to grid is now accessible by the utilities or the, or the energy sales arm. One of the ways that folks have proposed how vehicle grid can work and certainly how microgrid and transactive energy can work is vis-a-vis some uh, application of the blockchain. So I'll couch that here, hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. My answer to that would be, I don't know. Who the hell knows? Because, you know, it, it, it's already hot. I mean, it's, it's incredibly hot and, and getting hotter. There's all kinds of people proposing a dizzying number of ways to apply blockchain to energy and storage transaction and micro, you know, microgrid uh, via blockchain and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I can't decide whether this is all going to collapse in on itself or just become the way we, we do, you know, distributed transactive energy. Hey, Warrior, have you ever designed a system right in front of a customer? Now, for some of you sales folks, that might sound crazy, but for some solar developers, it's crazy genius. In a traditional sales meeting, you show up with a presentation and numbers, and that sets up a subtly adversarial relationship where you're trying to convince the customer of the validity of your numbers and the value of the system that you've created for them. With Helioscope's intuitive design software, some savvy sales teams are flipping that script. Instead of showing up with a presentation, you're showing up with a list of questions. And only when you get to know the customer, understand their priorities, constraints, etc., do you then design a system right in front of them, often with the customer looking over your shoulder every step of the way. That's when a certain magic happens. The customer now owns the system. And with Helioscope's new proposal tool, you can actually design, pitch, and close in one meeting. Give it a try and transform your sales process. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. As a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days for a 60-day free trial with Helioscope. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. And I know you are a fan of time savings, so I'd ask, what would you do with two extra hours every day? What if there was a better way to run your reports, send your invoices, manage your projects at all stages, monitor your sites? And what if none of that involved copying and pasting from the dreaded Excel? Our friends over at PowerHub make solar projects and portfolios easier to manage. PowerHub is flexible and customizable so it can support your business and make your life easier, saving you time and making your business money. See, using PowerHub makes you look good. How's that for ROI? Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more.
You, you founded Mid-Atlantic CEO, which I think you guys recently rebranded uh, by a different name, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the value of organizations like CIA, past and present. Recently, CIA has been going through some growth and probably some growing pains, I would imagine. Uh, I feel like they've, been, uh, they've got great leadership under Abby, but there's a lot of disparate voices in trying to sort of unify the nation. You were particularly focused on the Mid-Atlantic and creating the type of policy support that was needed at that time. Recently, a petition was filed uh, by Jigger Shaw, Barry Cinnamon, and I think about 800 more folks citing problems with SIA that need to be addressed. I'd love to, as we discuss sort of your thoughts on founding Mid-Atlantic SIA and the evolution, I'd love to hear if you were a signatory to the recent petition and let's maybe talk about sort of how things have evolved over the years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Big subject. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I was a signatory along with 800 people of that petition. And uh, the, the petition, in my mind, uh, needed to go a little further in, in a couple of directions. Yes, in Mid-Atlantic Sea, uh, about uh, five or six years ago, we started having some serious problems with National Sea. We do believe that Sea needs to undergo some some deep, deep changes, fundamental changes and reforms uh, to be what it should be. Uh, certainly a very powerful organization that has been uh, largely responsible for a lot of the uh, the federal gains uh, that that we've made and uh, has been through some tough tough battles in recent years, yeah. And of course, Mid Atlantic Sea has as well. I always say to people that this is an industry that's driven by policy. Mm -hmm. This industry would not exist if it weren't for policy. And keeping policy going in the right direction is job number one. So I say this to other businesses because it's incredibly hard to get businesses to support policy monetarily, like to, to really put up money. And I say, if you have an advertising budget, that's great. But before you even think about advertising and marketing budget, think about a policy budget because your your business doesn't exist if policy goes in the wrong direction. And we see dramatic rises and falls in business, boom and bust cycles that are driven by policy. So I think all solar businesses need to take policy more seriously and support it more with money. It's always, you know, like, like uh, pulling teeth <laughs> to get the support we need, even tiny amounts of support. We figured out in Mid-Atlantic Sea a little while ago that for every member dollar we've taken in, we've produced about $3,000 of, of market activity. So wow. 3,000 to one ratio of, of investment to return is a pretty incredible investment. I think businesses need to realize that. But at the same time, it's no longer an industry of, of idealistic crusaders the way I started out. Uh, this, this is a multi, multi-billion dollar business and people are in it to make money, uh, myself included. And inevitably, with something that's so fast changing with different opportunities and different problems cropping up, uh, you get differences between the different businesses. And so it's not like uh, it's not like an industry that's really pulling in the same direction all the time. One of the things I really want to understand is, A, what's the nature of the petition? Sort of what is the industry asking of SIA right now? And underneath that, answer the question for myself and others, like, is it still beneficial to be a member. And I, and I don't presume that you can answer that for anyone else. I just would love to hear the thoughts of someone who founded one of the regional SIAs. Uh, and for those who don't know and, and or don't remember, 
SIA national is not the same as Mid-Atlantic SIA or Cal SIA or the other, uh, you know, Colorado SIA. They're independent organizations who work symbiotically, but SIA national doesn't provide money to Mid-Atlantic SIA and vice versa. They are symbiotic relationships. It can get confusing for folks because they may think, oh, I'm a member of Mid-Atlantic SIA. I'm supporting SIA but they're two separate organizations. So Mid-Atlantic SIA actually was a chapter of SIA. We, we just recently um, ceased our affiliation uh, with National SIA over these, these issues that we were talking about. Symbiotic probably isn't the right word uh, and never, never really was. Even as a chapter of SIA for most of these 21 going on 22 years of Mid-Atlantic SIA's uh, existence and some of the other chapters like CalSIA go way, way back even further. Yeah. We were really separate organizations that didn't mm-hmm. even really talk to each other much, wow. uh, but, but happily so. We were here doing our thing in New Jersey, kicking ass and taking names, a lot of big wins and and advancing this little state of New Jersey into a state that at one point was number two only to California. One year, we were like 60% of the size of the market in California. And SIA really was kicking ass and taking names in Washington, D.C., doing great things there. And, uh, you know, we were an affiliate and we thought what they were doing is great and what we were doing is great, but we, we weren't really working together or, or helping or hurting each other. We, we ran into conflict, as I was saying, starting about five or six years ago. Uh, SIA was having a hard time on the federal level, uh, didn't have wins, started saying they wanted to get involved in state affairs. And they came to uh, us and other uh, regional affiliates and said, uh, you know, we want to work closely with you and help you. Uh, we had a meeting with Roan Rash where he said, you guys have been doing great things on the state. And uh, with our resources, we want to help you do what, what you're doing. But what actually happened was regional and, and state industry organizations, including ours, had had conflict for years with a national organization called uh, the Solar Alliance at the time. They were sort of dominated by a small handful of big players and were advocating policies that we thought were harmful for the industry and wrongheaded, you know, not uh, the right way to go for the public uh, and not the right way to go for the industry. And of course, because we're a publicly supported industry, I've always believed that we have an obligation to shepherd the interests of the public. We, we have three fundamental principles for MCA, which we publish on our website. And one of those three is deliver solar power at the least possible cost to ratepayers and doing the greatest public good or delivering the greatest value as a public good. So we had this conflict with policies that were being pushed by the Solar Alliance. And it turned out that National SIA was merging with the Solar Alliance and the Solar Alliance people were becoming the state state arm of National SIA. And the conflict began, and we were having real, real problems with that, where we were, we were fighting in front of the government, uh, fighting with each other. We were coming in saying one thing and saying, we're the voice of the mid-Atlantic solar industry. It was CEO coming in and saying the opposite thing, pulling in the opposite direction and saying, no, we're the voice of the solar industry here. And uh, that was very confusing to policymakers and really destructive for us as the, you know, we were, we were about a hundredth of the budget of National SIA. The other thing that became a big problem 
was the governance structure. And I think that was formed the heart of the petition that you mentioned, that the pay-to-play governance structure of SIA was evidently uh, a big part of the problem. And eventually, several of our board members at Mid-Atlantic SIA said, this is an ethical problem for us. Pay-to-play, they said, is a fundamental ethical problem for us and started pushing to disaffiliate because of that reason and the problems we were having in New Jersey that were so destructive. We undertook a long process of decision-making. We were reluctant to do this. Uh, So it, it was a couple of years talking about it and making decisions. We finally took that step uh, a few months ago. For other reasons, totally separately, we were uh, talking about changing our name, and that was for a different reason, which was that storage was, we saw becoming a much more important part of our industry, and we wanted the storage industry to be part of what we were doing too, so we could push storage uh, policies. So we changed our name to the Mid-Atlantic Solar and Storage Industry Association about about the same time, which is where we are now. But I do believe that SIA needs to fundamentally change the the pay-to-play structure where those who pay the the very, very large amounts of money have sole decision-making authority over federal and state policy. Uh, We think that has resulted in a lot of short-sighted and wrong-headed policy initiatives that they've done. They should be more like the, the affiliates, the state organization that have democratic decision-making processes. We think SIA needs that. And I realize that that the pay-to-play structure brings in quite a bit of money, but I, I think they could find other ways to do that. In the wake of changing, similar to California SIA, to a solar and storage alliance, what's on the table right now for Mid-Atlantic Solar and Storage Industry Association? And how do you as a developer, uh, how are you engaged there? And what are the things over the next two, three years that are really going to make an impact for developers that are looking to, to scale their business in, we'll just call it the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast? I'll start with a favorite saying of Jigger Shaw's, uh, which I've always loved. Uh, He says, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. We have done tremendous harm to ourselves because of getting too greedy. That's happened time and time again. And states have made mistakes as well that taken together have have caused a lot of boom and bust cycles uh, in the Northeast. The Northeast has been almost entirely characterized by boom and bust cycles, you know, almost any state you can, you can name. And there are a lot of policy decisions right now that are, that are trying to reverse that. We've had these twin problems that many states have had ratepayer costs that are far, far higher than they needed to be and should have been. New Jersey being the best example where ratepayers have paid over the last uh, 10 years probably close to a couple of billion dollars more than they should have paid. Now, you know, a couple of billion dollars of unnecessary public costs for a state this size would be an incredible scandal if it were seen as such. Now, to a great extent, these were sort of honest mistakes on the part of ratepayers, but also with a lot of encouragement from the solar industry. So New Jersey has gone through several cycles, boom and bust cycles that were real crises for the industry. We've always managed to get through it and uh, convince the legislature and and the governor's offices uh, of each administration to kind of rescue us from those 
from those busts and uh, get us on our feet again, only to come up to another bust in a few years. This is the result of the of the incentive model based on a tradable SREC commodity, which in my opinion, and, and I've fought this for 15 years now, was an incredibly unwise direction to go in. And uh, that, uh, that was actually the struggle we had with the Solar Alliance. That uh, was the biggest struggle we had. And later with National SIA was pushing this model, which spread to Pennsylvania, then Ohio and Washington, D.C. and Maryland and Massachusetts, New Jersey is now the last state <laughs> to, to be using this model that, that is a real solar market. The other markets either died uh, for the most part, uh, which was Ohio and Maryland and PA, and became minor markets as a result, uh, or ratepayer costs got so high, and this would characterize Massachusetts, where they made an intelligent decision to leave that behind and go in another direction. Massachusetts, as you know, now has the SMART program, which is a 20-year secure income stream at a much lower cost. New York was the one market that never went in this direction, thank goodness. And uh, they they had the New York Sun program, which was a highly secure three-year payout of, of incentives. And they achieved a cost of growing solar that was on the order of one one sixth of the cost of growing the same amount of solar in New Jersey. I was asked by Senator Bob Smith here in New Jersey to do a report for the Senate Environment Committee uh, comparing the two, and that's what came out of the report. We were paying six times too much. We're finally in a position, uh, perhaps, to change that in New Jersey. The new clean energy law set us on a course to 50% renewables by 2030, that could and should mean huge amounts of solar and a steadily building market. Right now, we're going through some pains trying to transition to a new incentive program, which the, which the bill required. And the bill also put cost caps on renewable energy. We're in kind of a pickle now because the the legacy costs of this tradable SREC program are so high that we are not going to be able to stay within those cost caps. We, do, we still don't know what's going to happen when we bump up against them, which is going to be very shortly, whether we can find a way. You know, the governor loves solar energy, wants to, to continue, but the cost of this transition to 50% is so high that uh, we're between a rock and a hard place costs that are widely perceived as being untenable and the desire to combat climate change through renewables. So it, it's, it's quite a pickle. I think the lesson learned is uh, a couple of things. One is that we have to be just to survive and get to this new era where there's big changes for the Northeast in large amounts of solar energy. We have to be paying more attention to ratepayer costs and not be the hog that gets slaughtered per Jigger Shaw. Those policy pathways that get us to low cost have to be the ones that we steer toward. And it's been extremely clear that the incentives that are low cost are the ones that provide secure incentive. Because for investors, there's always a big uh, premium to undertake a lot of risk. That's why tradable SREX have been so expensive. Can you give examples of the low-cost incentives uh, or the, these policies that are on the pathway to low-cost? 
New Jersey is the best example of the very high cost path and sure. Massachusetts used to be, you know, uh, the SREC 2, which was supposed to bring down the cost in Massachusetts is still $325 a megawatt hour. Uh, New Jersey is currently $220 per megawatt hour. To get to a, um, a long-term, like Massachusetts Smart, a 20-year secure income stream, you only need in the neighborhood of 80 to to $100. So that's, that's a big, big difference uh, from where Massachusetts has been and where we are now and where, where we can be. So that's the key is long-term secure uh, incentive streams. Investors love it, so it's great for the industry. Two other things I think we need to change are uh, there, there needs to be a reassessment of, of uh, net metering mm-hmm. the way they've already done in New York with the value of distributed energy resources. And um, Massachusetts is kind of taking a turn in that direction where in Massachusetts, in the SMART program, they're paying a total for energy plus attributes that's set at what does it need to be to make the solar happen? So they make this the decision, we're going to make the solar happen. Here's the total we need to pay to get that solar to happen. So the total of energy plus attributes is going to be X. Now, if you're a solar developer like me, at that point, you don't care what you're getting for energy. doesn't matter. We're going to get the same total either way if we're doing it in Massachusetts. If we start to think that way, there's a lot of benefits. For instance, if we can get there to a similar place here in New Jersey where we can connect on the grid side of the meter or on the customer side of the meter and get paid the same total either way, we open up tremendous new markets for, you know, giant million square foot rooftops that we have all over New Jersey or a couple hundred thousand square foot rooftops, but the, but the building doesn't have the load to support it. So we've got all these empty, empty rooftops that we haven't been able to use. It opens up tremendous new markets where if we're feeding directly into the grid and still getting paid the same amount, we don't have to worry about the creditworthiness of the building owner anymore. Doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't even matter if the building goes dark. We're perfectly happy covering that entire roof with solar. So that's another, another lesson learned, I hope. And one other that Massachusetts unfortunately didn't get right, and this is not confined to the Northeast or the United States, or it, it's been a worldwide phenomena, Many jurisdictions, like Massachusetts just did, set a multi-year goal for how much solar energy they're going to build, right? Maybe uh, in New York, New Jersey, we've been setting these eight-year, 10-year goals, uh, but many jurisdictions, as Massachusetts just did with SMART, take that whole, that whole pie that's supposed to cover uh, eight, 10 years and dump it on the table on day one and say, come and get it. And and that really uh, it, it that that killed the market in Germany, in Spain, in Italy, all over the place. You see whole programs and whole regional industries falling because of dumping multi-year programs all on the table instead of regulating them year by year. Jersey, we're hoping right now, uh, within the next six months or so to create a new program that'll be sustainable in all those ways. You know, we, we hope to enable direct grid connection. We hope to get a long-term secure income stream and bring that cost down, make ratepayers and, and policymakers more happy and have a year-to-year goal 
instead of dumping everything on the table and, and having it gone in a matter of weeks, like we've just seen in Massachusetts. All right. If you are listening to the public feed, not the Suncast Tribe feed, then I hope that you've enjoyed our time with Lyle Rawlings. We do have additional material as uh, we have recorded for all of the 137 episodes prior, which just uh, does sometimes doesn't fit into the time allotted. Those are lessons learned and learning leadership and legacy where we dig into how Lyle uh, stays ahead of his peers, how he educates himself, what consistent habits and practices, etc. If you're interested in hearing that and some other thoughts on how becoming Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year helped or improved his, uh, his own thought as an entrepreneur or maybe his thoughts on the correlated cost implications of high penetration renewals, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the Suncast Tribe. It's a modest annual contribution and you will get this and other additional exclusive member benefits. For those of you who are already tribe members and you're listening to the public feed, be sure to check your private feed for the longer form interview with Lyle. Lyle, so grateful to have you on Suncast today, my friend, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person someday soon in uh, New Jersey and seeing how the work that you're doing is helping propagate the uh, inevitable high penetration grid that we all look forward to. That's great. Thanks, Nico. Thanks very much. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. I sure learned a ton, and I hope that you did as well. You know, if you would share this episode with your friend or your mother or the guy walking beside you right now to the subway, I would really appreciate it. Hit me up on Twitter at N-I-C-O-M-E-O if you'd like to carry on the conversation throughout the rest of this week. Definitely find Lyle over on Twitter at Solar Daddy. If you'd like to learn more about Lyle or connect with him, you can also click on that listen link at mysuncast.com, which will take you to the episodes page. There I have show notes, social media and website links, incredible book recommendations and more. And a pro tip, you can always just scroll to the bottom of the homepage on mysuncast.com and search the entire website and archives. Hey, while you're also there, please check out our Suncast tribe. I mentioned it before. You can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on that member button to learn more. If you're already in the tribe this week, then you're going to enjoy an extra half hour where Lyle and I discuss his Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, what he sees on the horizon for the business, and of course, all the questions I typically have at the end of the interview around lifestyle, learning, and the crystal ball. Until next time, I do look forward to hearing from you in the interwebs and over on mysuncast.com. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.